The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. We wish you a merry X-Men. We wish you a merry X-Men. We wish you a merry X-Men. All the mutants are here. Nightcrawler just bamfed and Storm made it snow. Colossus got cut into tinsel for drinking Wolverine's beer. Jingle bells, Bastion smells, the professor went astray. The Blackbird jet was blown to heck, but the X-Men got away. Hey! Jingle bells, Scott Lobdell was fired from the book. But Steven Siegel and Joe Kelly really made him cook. Mero the Morlock was a very angry gal. Forget sticks and stones, she had extra bones jutting out from everywhere. Maggot the X-Man was another mutant punk. He's Joe Mad Design, so kids liked him fine, but he really kind of stunk. Oh, X-Men Zine, oh, X-Men Zine. This is the wizard special. Oh, X-Men Zine, oh, X-Men Zine, and nothing rhymes with special. Our guests are here, it's Dalibor, and Jerry D is at the door. Oh, X-Men Zine, oh, X-Men Zine, let's talk the wizard special. Hey, happy holiday, geeks! <laughs> Adam here to welcome you into our cozy little discussion about the Wizard X-Men special from 1998. But you know, the holidays are about getting together with friends. So this time around, I'm joined by returning guest, the indie hype man himself. It's Dalibor from Catalyst Magazine. Welcome back. Thank you very much. I'm super excited to be here. Excited to be talking X-Men. That We've been talking back and forth and I was just like, wait, you like X-Men, right? You were reading them around this time. You're the guy. <laughs> but also making his first appearance on the podcast is a man for whom it's Christmas all year round. As the host of the Totally Rad Christmas podcast, it's Jerry D. How you doing, Jerry? Hey, I'm great. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, no, I've been on your show a couple of times and had great discussions about all sorts of fun stuff. But this time, I'm glad that you are here because... On your podcast, you've covered comics. Yes, you're talking about Christmas specials and other things, but you get into, you know, these Christmas-themed comics that are a lot of fun. But since this is your first time on Wizards, we want to know how you discovered comic books, you know, as a wee lad. So please tell us your <laughs> origin story. So it all began 1980. No, my dad used to collect Spider-Man. He had like the original Spider-Man run from like one through 25 for a long time. Now they were crazy beat up. His name was written on them. I mean, they were terrible <laughs> condition, but he had them. So it was like, whoa. So when he brought home some Batman, Batman was always my first love. And then in 1990, he brought home some Marvel cards. I don't know if you remember, but in the 80s and 90s, they made like trading cards out of everything. Ghostbusters, Gremlins. I mean, they had them. And so Marvel had their own. 
home. And so we brought series one home of just a box and my brothers and I dug through it and we each were able to come out with a complete set from that box. And wow. from there, I was like all in on Marvel and I started, you know, just trying to read all the cards, learn as much as I could. And one day, it was 1991, my dad brought home X-Men number one and Uncanny X-Men number 281. Okay, this was like the launch of the blue and gold teams, you know, the Shadow King had been defeated. It's like the return. X-Factor now merged back with the X-Men. Excalibur had their own thing. It was it was huge. So from there, I was all in and I was reading X-Men comics since then. And uh, the two things that mattered most to me in, in the 90s were X-Men and uh, Mortal Kombat. So... Um, <laughs> yeah, X Men really. When they had the cartoon, I was like, "Whoa!" And then we got the Capcom Children of the Atom X Men fighting game. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so it all worked out. <laughs> well, that's awesome, Jerry. That's I'm glad to hear it. That's so cool. So here's the thing, Jerry. You were reading back then. Dalibor, you were reading. I also, of course, had multiple copies of X Men Number One because it was just the thing to do. I had just like gotten into comics at that moment. But for people that hadn't been reading X Men comics since 1991, when 1998 rolled around and this special hit the shelves, Wizard kicks off the issue by providing the top 10 things you need to know about the X-Men. And so they call it explanations. <laughs> uh. Basically, they're asking the questions before the readers do and then providing the answers. So I figured, you know, we could each read one of these and give the answer, catch some people up. At least, you know, it's not the obvious stuff. This is this is like kind of at this moment what was going on. So Jerry, why don't you start us off here? Who's yeah. on the current X-Men roster? Okay, so that's the question. The answer is, recently, the X-Men have fielded upwards of 15 members. The new pared-down seven-member roster, debuting in August of course, this is back in 98, will include Colossus, Marrow, Nightcrawler, Rogue, Shadowcat, Storm, and Wolverine. An eighth member will be joining later. Big roster, bringing it down, making it more manageable at this point. Can you point to, like, you know, you're talking about the blue and gold teams. Like, did you have a preferred roster, a preferred era of the team? I'll let you go first, Delabor. At the time, I actually really liked the Back to Basics like post onslaught, like this era, this era, I really liked because it was like you stripped away all the gadgets you stripped away like there's a there's a great line in X-Men 70 where Wolverine comes back into the mansion and he says the place smells of antiseptic nothing after Bastion had torn through it and I was like the scope of that and like the bare bonesness and like they found a, uh, their their original Blackbird in the lake because that's where Ford just stashed it when he bought when he <laughs> built the new one that's funny. like that's my favorite where, era where else do you stash a Blackbird right of course <laughs> Yeah, you learned something from Norman Bates and Psycho. You know, you just there put you the underwater. Uh, but Jerry, how about for you? Do you go back? Is there a classic team in your mind or a classic era of the book? I mean, I'm a Claremont guy straight up. So even though Jim Lee in his run kind of really got me into X-Men, I, I prefer Chris Claremont's writing of the late 70s, early 80s. So I love the that giant size X-Men, number one, and that team that kind of formed afterwards. I, I did like when Rogue and uh, when, when Gene was back on the team for a bit as Phoenix. So like, that's my dream team. Then after that, the whole Outback era just wasn't my jam because my favorite character of all time is like Cyclops. And so the fact that Cyclops wasn't on that. My man! Right? He's like so mis 
misunderstood. He's like the greatest. Oh man, I love him. So the fact that he wasn't on that team at the time, it was like, yeah, I'm, I'm okay with without reading a lot of these. And then Blue Team, of course, was probably my my fave after that. Just the Blue Team was great. I go back to like the Pride of the X Men cartoon. Who was oh, the nice. yeah. there? <laughs> Who ended up in the video game? Like growing up, like Nightcrawler was like my first. Like you know, Spider Man was my guy. But of like a new superhero, I was learning about. I was like, Nightcrawler's awesome. And then I was like, and I love Colossus. Those are the two that kind of got me. And I was like, now they're in a video game. I can't believe it. So, and I, I also like after I got X Men number one, I went back and picked up some of the X Men classic, you know, to reprints and things like that. So that there was good stuff in there. But uh, Dalibor, you know, the person none of us are bringing up as our favorite was kind of the guy of the moment of the last few years in X Men. Uh, why don't you read this next uh, question for us? If Professor X founded the X-Men, where is he? And the answer here is nobody knows. During last summer's Operation Zero Tolerance storyline, Xavier was incarcerated by the U.S. government, and shortly after that, poof, he went MIA and has been gone ever since. He had been in prison for his involvement in 1996's Onslaught crossover, where Xavier's powerful subconscious created Onslaught, a villain responsible for destroying parts of Manhattan and murdering the Avengers and Fantastic Four. It was learned later that the heroes survived the encounter. The X-Men are expected to start looking for their missing mentor in late 1998. I love how he's always missing, or he just goes to space. Like, exactly. Get this guy out of here. Let the kids run wild, you know? <laughs> Guy needs a vacation, you know. <laughs> yeah. All right. Last part here. Why are there so many X books is the next question. Answer, because they make so much darn money. The Uncanny X-Men and X-Men are the two core X books. The other books with an X in their title don't necessarily tie directly to them. X-Force stars Teenage Mutant Strike Force, who in the past have taken a hardline approach to Xavier's dream. Generation X features young mutants being trained to use their powers. Wolverine chronicles the solo adventures of X. Men's scrappy pug. Cable stars the <laughs> former leader of X-Force. His quest is to prevent the Earth's apocalyptic future by destroying the evil mutant apocalypse who's destined to take over the world. X-Man stars an alternate reality version of Cable. X-Factor features a team of mutant operatives with government ties, although issue number 149 currently on the stands is the final one before the title changes to Mutant X. We'd love to tell you all about Excalibur starring the British X-Men, but its last issue is number 125 shipping it on. I guess <laughs> it's just great like all these books being canceled so yeah so that is what was going on so much money to be had marvel was cashing in but i think they had reached the crest they'd see you know the diminishing returns and they're like okay let's get back to basics that's what yeah. we're doing here so i gotta ask of the spinoffs though you know there, there were so many did you guys have a favorite from the late 80s or from the 90s like which of the spinoff titles did you buy into and enjoy if any dalibor did you have one that's the thing is I'm all X-Men all the time. So for me, all of them kind of hit different parts for me, you know, like different little elements of my personality. X-Factor in that era was going like underground and they they had like splintered from the government and like dadiness of everything coming out of uh, Onslaught was just like perfect. Like with mystery, it was intrigue. Like I was there. The X-Force book was going more like almost like back to the New Mutants era. So it was, they were like kind of just going on a road trip and they were having some misadventures on the road. It wasn't this like mutant strike force thing. And then Cable was just kind of like, I'm this dude who's supposed to prevent the coming of Apocalypse. They just doubled down on that and they made him like the, the Ascani son and they really like went deep into that whole thing. I liked Excalibur too because Excalibur was such a, it was like a whimsical book, even though it had some like yes. really, really great 
great. Like Under War and Ellis, I will say, fantastic run. I just really like the whimsical stuff. I remember, uh, I think in the last issue, they talked about how, I forget his dang name, the like uh, Faye dude that, w- that was on the team for a while had just been in a coma since Rachel disappeared and had just like <laughs> stopped being in a coma for the wedding. Just like woke up. <laughs> <laughs> just in time yeah. well and alan davis's pencils oh, were fantastic oh. on excalibur like always yeah just brilliant see uh this was kind of hard because i've I'm with you. I, I bought all of them because that's how much I love the X titles. But if I had to choose, I might actually go with Generation X. Um, it was, you know, just seeing these these new mutants kind of discovering themselves. Now, this is a little bit before, you know, a few years before, but these brand new mutants, I thought Chamber was like a fantastic idea. Like his powers were just so impressive and uncontrollable that it literally just blew a hole in his chest. And the only thing keeping him alive is his power. And then when, when he got depowered after M-Day, that was like a whole thing. And I thought it was just a really cool concept that they took Banshee, who is like this kind of has been X-Man and uh, and Emma Frost, who is like trying to reform and they mashed them together and said, OK, run this team. I just so for me, it was probably that one. I thought they had some cool powers. Husk was neat. Skin was kind of gross, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. Hey, um, he made a big screen debut. You can't even you can't be mad about that <laughs> one. Oh, oh, you better believe I taped that when it came out. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. I'm surprised I never bought Generation X because I love the TV movie so much and I'm sure that's what they wanted for it to translate into sales you know they're like yeah look but the movie wasn't popular with most people but it was with me but still I didn't pick up the book at that point I was just like oh, no I just like this movie I'll just watch it over and over again <laughs> Matt Furrer made that though Matt Furrer totally yeah, yeah that dude Matt is Furer underrated make, all time he can make anything yeah <laughs> he's pretty fantastic uh, they could have put him into Morbius it would have been a better movie <laughs> <laughs> Max Headroom and Morbius? Yes. I know. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. So we got to kind of get into what was happening in this moment, right? They're putting out this X-Men special because we are entering the 35th anniversary, right, of the X-Men. Every five years, they're going to milk that as much as they can, right? It's the 40th. Oh, how about that? So starting off this special, there's the Year of Living Dangerously. It's an eight-page interview with the current X-Men writers, you know, on X-Men and Uncanny, Joe Kelly and Stephen T. Siegel. Now, interestingly, they're asked to describe how their writing styles differ. So Siegel says, quote, to me, Joe's stories are more like a good puzzle. After they're finished, you can see the parts and how they fit together. My stories feel more like a single part. Joe's is tight, but it's got lots of moving parts or subplots. Mine is tight, but it's usually only one storyline. To which Joe Kelly adds his opinion that, quote, Steve's stuff is a lot more mature. His writing is much further developed than mine. His stories (laughs) are better in terms of intensity I try to make up for that with my humor. Now, from our listener perspective, everybody says, I love the Kelly and Siegel era. Like it was just the best editorial messed them up or whatever happened. I haven't, I wasn't reading it. I haven't read that far beyond this point. So I am curious for you guys. Do you have an opinion of this era? Was it a return to form? Did you feel like Lobdell had been losing steam leading up to this? Like, like, where are you at with this pairing of guys working on the books? So I actually really thought that they complemented each other well. I felt that the Joe Kelly side of things kind of gave us more of a, like a granular look into a lot of the characters, like a lot of the interesting introspectives happened in the X-Men title. We got the Japheth backstory in that. We got the Marrow subplot in that, like throughout almost the entire year of books. Whereas in Uncanny, you had like the bigger stuff happening. You had the crossover with Alpha Flight. You had all this 
other stuff happening that was just it was a bigger book you had all the uh, original five happening and the thing happening in alaska which was a great story but like it, it was different different attacks to like looking at the book like it was still kind of two different teams even mm-hmm. though it was all still happening at the same time okay yeah because it does seem according to wizards reporting that they were definitely trying to be in sync like it was always joe kelly and steven t siegel they weren't like elevating one over the other it was like nope they're doing this together they're making it work but jerry were you reading and did you have a, a particular take on this era so this is when I kind of started to, because uh, at this point, I think when they took over, it was actually, I just graduated. I was getting ready to go to college. And, you know, your budget kind of tends to take a huge hit when you're in college. So um, this is when I kind of started reading less, um, but I picked up the trade since then. But for me, what I found different about them was it just, it felt fresh. Like I liked Scott Lobdell and, and his run. I like, uh, you know, Fabian Nicias and, and all those, but it was more of like a return to form of X-Men. You know, like, oh, this is the team. I can follow this team and let's go on these adventures. And I, I did kind of feel more like like that was the vibe overall. Uh, writing style uh, at the time, I, I'll be honest, I'm a physics major. So I was more into, you know, that kind of technical writing. So I wasn't super into analyzing differences of style as I am now. So it's hard for me to kind of put a, a spin on and a take on on their styles. But I just remember it feeling different. And I, I liked it because it just it, it wasn't quite same old, same old. But that's kind of where I land on it. What I find interesting about this era, too, is so on Uncanny X-Men, you had somebody correct me if you know how to properly pronounce it. Is it mm-hmm. Bacalo, Bacalo, or is it Bacalo, Chris Bacalo? I, it's, it's been Bacalo because I heard someone else say it, and that's just what I've been going with. <laughs> same. Okay. Hard same, like, yeah. <laughs> he jumps off Generation X. He graduates, essentially, gets the big book, and he is like the continuous you know, artist on that. Like, I mean, he's solid. He's on there for a while a long time yeah quite a yeah. while yeah mm-hmm. but then on x-men you know joe kelly is just like teaming up with different people every issue it feels like like brandon peterson does an issue and then you get mm-hmm. adam kubert for a while then he gets like yeah. just like whoever like they could grab for as long as they could get him like and i don't know if there is every permanent artist that sticks around for like a year or something with with that run maybe it was the art that was keeping me off generation x but when i when i read back and forth between uncanny and x-men when i was going through these storylines that were happening at this time i was kind of like i think i like the guest artists better but i don't know if you guys have a preference you know for for having the generation x guy drawing x-men now he definitely has his own style and there's some t- some things he draws that you're just like wow this guy is fantastic and then there's other things he draws and you're like well is he you know <laughs> so i completely get it i mean he's definitely a way better artist than i am so yes he's fantastic <laughs> But I think his style fit Generation X better than it did X-Men, personally. I'll agree with that because a lot of his characters look very young. Right. I, uh, I actually yeah. made him my uh, my like honorable mention in my list of my favorite Cyclops artists, oh, uh, nice. but, o- but only <laughs> for the Revolution era Cyclops. The I like, gotcha. r- red and with the X on his face. Yeah. That's because he he made him look awesome. Even when he does does like con sketches and stuff of him in that era, it looks great. But like in this era, his Cyclops look not great, not not bad, but just not great. He, he was like like wide and bulky, like yeah. a little square, but just yes, yes, everything <laughs> felt very square. I know exactly what you mean. But then like when he did it, when he did it later, when he did the Revolution era Cyclops, he just killed it. I just really like that look for him. So mm-hmm. it's 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 like his style really works in certain things. Yeah. 
Now, I will say that, you know, Joe Kelly, Stephen T. Siegel, they are spend most of the interview teasing their upcoming storylines, right? So they're saying, like, we got this thing called Children of the Atom, and then we're doing the hunt for Xavier. And so all of this is coming together as part of the 35th anniversary. So this is starting in Uncanny X-Men 360 and X-Men 80, and then it kind of goes along here. So I got a chance to read these for the first time. I assume you guys were reading them at the time or have caught up to them at least. Do you have any particular opinion of these arcs and and what you think they were trying to accomplish with that. So I remember reading them at the time. Looking back on it now, they're not ones that I personally rank in like best X-Men storylines. Not that they're not good. They're they're very well done. For me personally, I I mean it's hard to compete with some of these others. You think of the Dark Phoenix saga, you think of the Mutant Massacre, you think of uh, even Age of Apocalypse I thought was well done. Um Executioner Song, all these. I just again, I thought they were very well written. They they played out. I just it, they aren't quite up there for me in terms yeah. of um, all-time story arcs. Well, and it's worth mentioning for those who haven't read it or don't remember it well, like at least the Children of the Atom one, it was just like a a little two issues in each title. But it was basically a new X-Men team has been assembled by who you think is Professor X. And so it's all these like that they're slightly off. They're these new mutants that have been recruited, but they kind of look like X-Men you've seen before, but kind of not. And then they (laughs) they come and fight the X-Men and that's all the dialogue. You think you're the X-Men? No way, bub. We're the real X-Men. Like that's the whole thing. But Dallin you think about that one so that arc is actually literally when i stopped buying also for (laughs) you know for financial reasons but like that those were like my last two issues for a long time i like it was probably a couple years from then till i even started like bootlegging and i read the, the hunt for xavier like cleared up that story a lot better so like the children of the atom story there are like divisive this is a divisive story in the x-men community (laughs) i'm actually i'm actually in the process of writing a video to like break down my opinions on it but i think it's an interesting flashpoint in what was happening and what was about to happen right we went from this like rough and tumble rugged era we're like scrapping together cerebro units to we are literally now on a specific mission and every chapter of this serves this exact story and the back and forth between the san francisco team and the russia team uh, was great also the hunt for xavier has my favorite interaction ever of all time with kitty and kurt and that's when he buys her her star of david necklace yeah, and yeah, it was yeah. such up to that point i didn't I realize that, that she was jewish so like i was like oh that's really cool and that's like a real and i had already read stuff with him like talking about him being christian so right. i was like oh this is like a really like interesting thing i like was too young and like too underdeveloped as far as like critiquing to like understand like the real importance of the moment but right. every time i revisit it i'm like oh this is actually a really f- beautiful moment yeah it did feel like you said they understood the characters and so they were saying you know what let's draw a little bit of the history and let's give them these character moments i know in some of the articles we were reading in wizard the little blurbs that they were grabbing prior to this special is they're saying we're getting back to smaller stories that are going to be character driven and i was like oh well that sounds like that's not going to be very good but it's like no they balance the action (laughs) and the relationships in like Mm -hmm. a fantastic way i was so excited about that also harder when like you're used to in the 90s everything was extreme and everything was like bombastic and, yeah, and big that's and then, exactly it yeah what do you mean character driven i, I want to see battles <laughs> I, 
give me the amalgam universe where you just smash the two together. You know, <laughs> you know, you don't think like character driven. And now as adults, you're like, well, that's where it's at. Like, that's where the heart of everything is. So. Yeah, exactly. and I will say, like, I read like some of like the Joe Mad Scott Lovedell era, just you know, gr- random issues. I've grabbed a back issue bits as we've been doing the show, trying to catch up, and I'm just like, I don't know where you're going here. It just sounds like you're <laughs> you're dropping a lot of threads, and I and I don't understand. You know, it's like, oh, and now there's like ninjas involved for. The, I mean, there's always ninjas. <laughs> played around and Wolverine's backstory and all that kind of stuff. But I was just like, it didn't like coalesce as well. And in these, even between two different books, two different writers, it all just worked so perfectly. And I was just like, this is wonderful. I was loving it. Now, here's the thing though. This was supposed to be, you know, you you said a return to form. That's what it was. They're they're drawing on the history. And so Wizard is kind of doing the same. They're saying, let's look back. Let's talk to all the different writers and artists that worked on X-Men and had a huge impact. Let's see just some memories they had to share. So, Jerry, can you read uh, to us what Stan Lee was saying about his favorite (laughs) X-Villain here? It's kind of surprised me. Well, first he says Excelsior. No, uh, but (laughs) no, he does say he does say that his favorite ex-villain is the Blob, which I thought was intriguing. He says he had a truly original power. He was so heavy, so strong that no one and nothing could move him. Also, he was a pathetic villain with whom we could sympathize. (laughs) Which, he's not very pathetic when in this Hunt for Xavier story. No. Now, you know, he's just like a a bullying jerk in the Brotherhood of Mutants. Right. They are the ones who have kidnapped, so to speak. They've liberated Professor X and made him train them and do all this stuff. But yeah, he's a very different character. I never think of him as pathetic. So, <laughs> well, and then of course we're nowadays we think back to the Ultimate Universe where like he ate the Wasp. I mean, that's just that's crazy. Gross. Yeah. Yeah. So I've never actually caught up to the Ultimate Universe, but I I forget that moment. I've seen it on Twitter, obviously. Right. And that just brought it back. It's a gross moment. <laughs> Yeah. Now, uh, someone who came in after Stan Lee's uh, you know, time on the book was Neil Adams. He had a mm. short run before it was canceled in 1970. He was kind of like the last ditch. Like, can he do something to make this stick, I guess? <laughs> but he offers up a really fun piece of headcanon. He says, quote, Hank McCoy is Wolverine's son. The physicality <laughs> is the same. They've both got wow. short stature, long arms, and even that peaked hair. That idea has been around my head almost as long as Logan's been around. I figure he's real old and could have fathered a lot of illegitimate children. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> Turns out that's true, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> and then we got Dave Cockrum, who was responsible for many of the all-new, all-different X-Men character designs from Giant Size X-Men number one, like Nightcrawler, Storm, Colossus, and Phoenix, shares his piece of headcanon that never made it into any published comics. I tried to establish that Wolverine was actually a mutated Wolverine, <laughs> actually the animal, but Stan wouldn't let us do it. I remember reading about that, and it's, it's such a ridiculous thing, especially like, I, I like the lore of that, I mean, I've, I've talked to Adam before, like, I'm a big, big process junkie, so like, the origin of a lot of these costumes was he was building like a new team of legionnaires for dc and they were like you're not gonna be on the book anymore so he just took a lot of those designs and and turned them into x-men which i love storm nightcrawler all those yeah it's good stuff when uh asked what he would change about his time on the x-men the man who defined the characters for decades chris claremont who i love reveals i would have liked to have bought the characters outright from marvel having seen what they've become barring that i would have left jean gray dead as was originally intended 
Her death gave the book depth that a typical comic at the time didn't have. In the reading you've done, you know, for the last few decades, is Jean Grey necessary to any major story that you feel is is a classic? Like, if she had stayed dead, would the X-Men universe have been fine? Oh, you mean since Dark Phoenix? Yeah, since Dark Phoenix. Since she died, and yes. they, they brought her back for X-Factor and everything else. But if that had never happened, do you think she's really a necessary character or better as a death and a mark on the, the team's history? I think she's necessary in several too. stories. I would say Onslaught, as as like widely panned as it is as a storyline, I still like it because it introduced Same. me to this idea that Professor Xavier is not this flawless good person. Like he's not a lawful good guy. And it, it gave us this touch into his psyche of this like flashback. It was shown to Jean, right? Like two issues before the actual like conflict began in Onslaught. Onslaught showed Jean Xavier's thoughts from like early, early, early era X-Men, like her second year there, maybe even earlier. And him thinking like, how could I not worry about the woman that I love? And I was like, she was 15, Charles. Like immediately that sullied everything. Cause all I had at that <laughs> point was the show. And on the show, he's effectively perfect. He's just yeah. the dude who's always trying his hardest to be the best dude. Yeah. And in the comics, you come to find out, especially if you're a new reader entering this era, you come to find out Xavier's done some silly, dumb, ignorant He's shady, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. I I agree. Jean is definitely important because technically if she hadn't returned, we wouldn't have gotten the Inferno with Scott, you know, his ex-wife Madeline Pryor. I mean, that whole thing. She helped raise Cable when he was young. I, I mean, there's a lot that I think Jean needs to be there for. Sorry, so Chris I, Claremont. Nobody agrees with you. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. I think there, there could have been a telling of that i mean i think they, they gave him the x-men forever book a few years back where he told his version of like if he had stayed on the book in, in 1991 i can't say that it was the favorite of my of the two ways it went but i do <laughs> like the idea of forward progression in stories right and when he right. wrote x-men the end that is some of my favorite x-men ever like that trilogy is some of my favorite x-men stories ever because it gave us like a future where things get better for them in the like based off the status quo at the time so it's like i'm a big fan of forward progression and characterization i don't the fact that they keep resetting peter parker you know to broken <laughs> alone i don't care get him married give him a family let miles be the main man you know like i want forward progression because it, and it's like they see people want to see it that's why they're doing it in the new also title but that's not x-men so let's keep going. <laughs> let's move on. Yeah. Now, what's interesting is Claremont's, you know, former partner in crime, that opinionated rascal, John Byrne, decides <laughs> that he's going to use his platform to rag on a couple of image founders once again. Oh, jeez. He's asked about his worst ex-memory. He says, quote, the five and a half minutes I was writing over Jim Lee and Will Sportacio's plots and pencils, nothing was on time, and I had to do a month's work in days. Then, since Jim and Will did not follow their own plots, I'd have to redo that work when the next batch of pages they'd said didn't match the previous. <laughs> So he's just like, that's the way it was. But they were popular, so I was there for a few minutes. But as far as what he could change, he says, I wish there was a way to retroactively obliterate the Days of Future Past story. Hasn't that horse been flogged to hamburger? <laughs> if he, if he only knew. I get it. They were like the hottest artists around. Like, yeah. what, what are you going to do, right? If they want a little more power of, with plotting, you got to give it to them if it's going to keep them on the book. But 
Yeah, it's some of their. It's. I, I don't know that. Like, I don't know how it was for you when you were. You know, at that at that era. See, I got to, to America in 1994. I was like back alley dealing with like students <laughs> in, in class. Like literally, we we would like meet up in corners of behind the lockers and be like, "Do you have the books? Do you have the money?" You know, like <laughs> checking over our shoulders, seeing what's going on. So I was getting the back issues that way. So that's I caught up basically back to like that era, the Will Sportaccio era. So I don't know that I, like the art alone would have made me buy the book because right. I actually like the like crazy storylines, the Mikhail Rasputin thing, like that whole oh, that art was, cool. was I wild. That, yeah. Like I would have been into that, not the art itself necessarily. Because Wills, I think I like his stuff, but like in certain again, in certain applications, his stuff works really, really well. Like I loved him on uh, Reborn Iron Man. I think he did an incredible job with that. But like, I don't always love him on X-Men. It's like certain I, things are really good. Certain things yeah. are, eh. Yeah, I get that. I, I loved the way he used to draw Jean and Colossus. I always thought his Colossus looked imposing as heck. Yeah. Um, it well, well, it does uh, seem like he liked his Colossus too, because then he created a whole team of giant metallic. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> So longtime ex-writer Scott Lobdell mentions a lot of editorial interference that he wishes he could remove from the time from his time on the yeah. book. While mentioning his favorite ex-villain, he de declares Bastion as he was originally written. I wanted him to get the X-Men permanently out of the mansion and on the run and then build him into a third point on the great triangle that would include Xavier and Magneto. His worst ex-memory was identified as Probably when Dennis Hogan died on the mansion grounds in X-Men Prime. I thought it was an embarrassing moment for the X-Men. They should have saved him. I vehemently argued against them dying. I remember that moment and like they should have saved him, but that was the point. Maybe this is why you were gotten rid of because like that was the point is that they failed to save him. And that started Xavier on the road to Onslaught. That's literally the beginning of the road to Onslaught arc. And he should know that he wrote it. It was his idea. <laughs> Fair enough. Now here's the thing, right? Is, you know, it sounds like there was maybe some, some infighting between editorial and the writing staff here and there. But Wizard decides that we're talking about the holidays. There's usually family squabbles going on. So they want to grab, you know, the soap opera drama of it all, this dysfunctional band of mutants. And they want to stage an imaginary brawl between the X-Men. You know, they've done so many last man standing style things. So you might ask, well, what's the setup? Does it matter? Because as Wizard states, quote, these characters have lived together for more than 30 years. They're bound to have a smidgen <laughs> of animosity after all this time. So according to Stephen T. Siegel and Joe Kelly, who were asked to give their opinions on how it would all go down, there will be blood. Wow. Quote, we're going for something like MTV's Celebrity Deathmatch. Oh, wow. That's, That's a reference. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in that spirit, Jerry, are you ready? Dallas, are you ready? Then let's get it on. <laughs> <laughs> so, apparently the pair don't think much of Iceman even though he won the reader poll for which X-Man should get their own solo title and wizard readers said we wanted Iceman but it didn't happen but the first showdown is Bobby Drake versus Scott Summers and Joe Kelly says quote 
Cyclops blasts Iceman and shatters him. Iceman pulls himself together again, a T-1000 kind of move. When he's done with that, he's so tired, he reverts to human form. Beast sees an opportunity to strike. He jumps on Bobby, snaps his neck, and rips his head off. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? I did not see that swerve coming. Brutality. The- <laughs> there you go. That's a brutality for sure. Right. Yeah, so technically, the winner of this match is Cyclops, Thanks to some outside interference from Hank McCoy. So, woo, what a starter. <laughs> That's the way to go, all right. Next up, it's Storm versus Gambit, who decides that playing cards aren't big enough weapons for this fight. Instead of tossing an ace of spades, Gambit, it's terrible. Gambit throws Iceman's supercharged head at Storm. Says Flag on the play. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, woo, party fell. But according to Kelly, it explodes near her but misses the mark. The pair state that Storm retaliates with a lightning bolt, which Gambit avoids with his agility, leaving the match at a stalemate. For now, as Gambit escapes to fight another one of the X-Women, one that he knows all too well. That's right. It's Rogue versus Gambit. The cunning Cajun manages to avoid the attacks of his former lover until, according to Kelly, finally she decides to go for the embrace thing. So she grabs Gambit and starts to kiss him to absorb his power. Rogue gets supercharged with Gambit's power and absorbs him so completely that she can't control it. Rogue ends up supercharging Gambit's body so much that he explodes and kills them both. Siegel disagrees. I think we should just have her throw him at somebody. But Kelly counters, I kind of like the idea of them dying together, in which Siegel agrees. Yeah, it's very romantic. (laughs) Wow. How titanic of them. Yeah, <laughs> Alibor, you were scoffing at this when he's supercharging this head of Iceman. My understanding, Gambit cannot supercharge like living tissue, right? That's now, correct. Technically, right. he's dead tissue. Has he ever supercharged a dead body and thrown it at somebody like this? I don't, I know. don't recall That's that. an interesting. So it's not about living tissue. Okay, it's about organic tissue. Okay, so he can't. Uh, there's a there's a fight in the Gambit series that's started around this time it's a little later on but there's a fight that happens with him and mystique and he is able to charge her clothes uh remotely this is a point where he becomes more powerful than he has traditionally been shown Hmm. but he charges her clothing but not all of her clothing because some of it is like cotton so that's organic but also only these synthetic parts of her clothing become explosive that's wild okay that really now yeah that that clears it up there yeah so the idea that she would charge up his body and he would explode makes no sense and these are the guys writing the main (laughs) i know they're just messing around but wow they should have been thinking (laughs) this this is the kind of thing this is the kind of thing that like whenever you know the verse battles and the verse arguments happen on the social medias i'm like i'm like this is literally like you're just abandoning all logistics and you're just you're just toddlers smashing toys together this is all that's happening <laughs> pretty much yeah yeah Now, uh, the next matchup, though, is the one you've all been waiting for, for sure. It's Cyclops versus Wolverine. How many decades has this been building up, right? I take umbrage with the end of this. Yes. (laughs) With the results. According to Kelly, quote, Cyclops keeps blasting Wolverine, but Wolvie gets nearer and nearer, slashing at Scott and drawing blood for sure. But Scott manages to get off one good optic blast that blows all the meat off Wolverine's arms. But as Siegel explains... That won't stop Wolverine. As the meat starts growing back, he just lashes out and slashes Cyclops to ribbons. You say no, Jim? Well, I mean, we've seen Psych take out the entire X team before. We've seen Psych and Wolverine fight in the schism, and Wolverine 
even though he was all mad and in his frenzy, he still couldn't beat Psych. So uh, wow. I'm going to call BS on this one. <laughs> I, I have to agree. I have to agree. Scott's a very tactical thinker. I yeah. think Scott is, at least if from a tactic perspective, Scott is the Batman of the X-Men. Yes. He knows how he's he's played with all these people. He is trained with all of them. He knows how to take them all out. And I bet you, I guarantee you, he read those Xavier files after they took them oh, from yeah. your island. He read every <laughs> single one. Yes. But Beast versus Storm is the next bout. Uh, according to Siegel, Beast should have been out earlier. He was our second casualty. But as Kelly explained, Storm can't hit him with lightning because he's too quick. I'm pretty sure lightning is fast, you know, but anyway, <laughs> he's too quick. So Storm calls up hail the size of golf balls and just bludgeons Beast, breaking every bone in his body. Seagull adds a gruesome ending. He gets completely pulverized. He's basically a bag of blue pus, not unlike a beanie baby. The beast can't move because he's completely pummeled. So Storm comes down and makes it rain one inch of water near his mouth and he drowns. That is Jeez. dark. Ouch. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See, it's like they almost... Like, he, he touched on it just a little bit, but, like, hail the size of golf balls? That's nothing. In a recent book, they, they've, they've been exploring the wits of Storm's abilities. They fought a kaiju on Arako, formerly Mars, and she summoned a single hailstone the size of a Buick. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Wow. So now it's time for Storm versus Phoenix. Taking advantage of Storm's claustrophobia, Jean uses her telekinesis to wrap Storm in the beast beanie baby body. Oh my goodness. She envelops Storm in this cocoon of dead beast, explains Kelly, then adds, Storm's totally blind and freaks out because she's in a dark, scary place. Always ready to add insult to injury, Siegel explains, Storm's foot is in the inch of water. When she fires off a lightning bolt, Phoenix uses her telekinesis to keep Aurora in the water, and she electrocutes herself. That's not how her powers work. X-Men Unlimited number one. Uh, well, also, in reading The Hunt for Xavier, there's a point where she gets encased in a box again because the Cerebro robot thing that they're fighting knows that. But she says, Cerebro is trying to throw off my concentration by preying on my claustrophobia. Well, then perhaps his files are outdated, for he must not know that I've conquered my fears. So even at this time, they might have written those stories and they didn't know that she was no longer claustrophobic. She has always done work, but even to this day, she has problems with claustrophobia. Really? They keep going she just, she, it's, it's one of, I mean, it's one of those like deep trauma things, right? It's not something you can cure really. Like, no, 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 man. You just, you just cure. That's yeah, it. yeah, it's done. It's done. <laughs> All right. Well, in the main event now. It's Wolverine versus Phoenix, right? So Wolverine's taking advantage of Cyclops being out of the picture and trying to convince Jean to drop her fists and lock some lips, all right? <laughs> but as Kelly reveals, quote, Cyclops isn't dead. He lets loose one final highly focused optic blast and just beheads Wolverine as he's about to kiss Jean. So she's left kissing his skull. I love that idea of the body just dropping off. <laughs> just <laughs> hands, you know. Siegel chimes in with, quote, so Jean rushes over to Scott and she says, my beloved, I'm so sorry you're in pain. And Scott says, I think I'll make it. Then she says, I think you won't. And she turns into Dark Phoenix and crushes him. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly adds the cherry on top, though, and then she devours the planet Earth. The end. <laughs> the end. Definitely celebrity deathmatch inspired. <laughs> I know. If you think of it in stop motion, claymation type of look, it actually is pretty hilarious. <laughs> but a real life story, no. What's funny is these two 
they're busy, but like somebody, <laughs> I'm just saying they've got a whole lot of other stuff going on. But somebody could take these exact story beats, make a mini series, sold out, sold yep. out, yep. Tri- triple printings minimum. Oh, I, I agree. I, right. Yeah. It's just like, especially this day and age where everything is like fanboy fulfillment, right? It's like, we'll give you whatever you want. It's an alternate mm-hmm. reality. It's a one-off miniseries. It didn't really happen, but here you go. So, all right. Well, guys, a little bit more about the history of the X-Men. I, I do love the work that Wizard puts into these specials because they really want to catch everybody up. They want to give you an opportunity right. to know what's come before. So they include 101 facts about the X-Men that you know, just make for some fun trivia. So we're going to go around, Even each of us will pick maybe three facts that stood out to us most. I'll kick off here. This one was interesting to me. It's feeling blue. And they say, Beast and Nightcrawler don't have blue skin. They have a fine coat of blue fur covering their bodies. Angel, on the other hand, really does have blue skin, while Maggot's blue skin activates only when he uses his mutant powers. I had no idea about that. That's interesting. They also don't mention Mystique here, which I thought was kind of fascinating. Right. She's an obvious blue X-Men character, but maybe they were going for the heroes, I guess. All right. Did uh, Jerry, did you have one that stood out to you? So the one that I, because most of these I already knew, the one that stood out because I didn't remember at all was number seven. It's called Chucky's Dead. said, Xavier once had a shapeshifter named Changeling pretend to be him while the professor secretly prepared for an alien invasion by the Xanox. When the fake Xavier died in battle, the X-Men even held a funeral. The genuine article returned a short time later. That was back for an uncanny X-Men number 42. It's one of those, like, Xavier's kind of an ass things. <laughs> exactly. Fooled you. I'm glad you spoke at my funeral. But right. I wasn't happy with that right. eulogy. <laughs> How about you, Dalimor? Is there one you were interested in? So there's a whole lot here, but I'm going to I'm gonna call one out because this hasn't been like brought back in a long time. We're going to talk about Wolverine's kid. It's number 13. Wolverine agreed to take care of a young Japanese girl named Amiko at the request of her dying mother. The girl is presently being watched over by Logan's ally, Yukio. Uncanny X-Men 181. So it's been a while at this point that this has been happening. And she was brought in a couple times in this era. They had her show up. And at one point, she became brainwashed and that's kind of where i lost track of her but i don't think she was brought back more than once after that i, I remember like, her being brought back in the wolverine comic but like you're saying yeah, yeah. x-men comics oh no 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 not an x-men no okay. but that's that's it's just something that she, she wasn't brought back uh mm-hmm. very often like she would show up and it'd be like oh you guys remember like this is a thing this is a thing for the last 20 years like that we just haven't addressed she's still six <laughs> Well, speaking of parents, uh, this is one that just I always wondered about, and I feel like I never read any of the issues that explained it, but number 62 is called Mommy Dearest, and it says Cyclops' mother was executed by the Shi'ar Emperor when his father Corsair tried to protect her from the Emperor's abuse. She and Corsair were considered human zoological specimens by the Shi'ar. So, I've always known Corsair is, you know, Havoc and Cyclops' dad, and I had the action figure back in the day, I just thought, this is so cool. But I never heard anybody talk about their mom so to finally understand what happened to her this is all these years later reading for this issue i'm like wow okay there's a you know gap filled in so the other thing that wasn't addressed was that later in the future because in 
93, they drop this little sprinkle. There's a conversation between Scott, Scott Summers <laughs> and Sinister, Sinister yeah. where he yeah. says, I've been watching you and your brothers for a long brothers. time, Scott. Well, and he said, brothers? He's like, oh, I must have spoken. And that's where they left it. And that was right around the time when they introduced Adam X, the Adam Extreme. Everybody, everybody thought he was... It was backwards. Yes. And they oh, brought him cool. in on so many little stories. There was a story with Scott's uncle and like they gave him Adam's memories of like flying through space it was a beautiful, beautiful issue. And then it just disappeared. Like that entire thread of story disappeared. It's like and... the Poochie of uh, X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, we finally in, in about the 2020, early 2022, we finally got the resolution to that story in X-Men Legends. The first arc of X-Men Legends was written by Fabian Nicieza, written, or drawn by Brett Booth. And it was the explanation of the, the final culmination of the third Summer's Brother, the original third Summer's Brother storyline. And that was was that he was their brother. This was the one that, I believe, they, if, I, if I recall the story correctly, they harvested her DNA. Vulcan, who was the first third Vulcan. Summer's brother that they brought in, right. she was pregnant. And essentially, as they were killing her, she, you know, released the baby. And they thought he was going to die, and he grew up in the pens on Chandelar. Like, Vulcan had a rough life. Adam was the result of, like, I believe they harvested her DNA and, and his... Yeah, they harvested her DNA and they made Adam X. And Adam X is like this kind of forced hybrid. Adam is half Naramani specifically, I believe. Emperor Deken's DNA is the, the other end of it. Wow, so, fascinating. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so they finally re resolved it. But the reason they could never talk about it is there was somebody hunting for them. And if they thought about the connection between them, it brought the hunt hunter to them. So they had to like wipe their mind. So the, it was like, this is why we never talked about it again right that is right. fantastic wow so clever those writers oh, Adam X. Oh. fabian man all time fabian jerry is there anything else on this list that you felt like was an essential fact well okay so as you can see i'm wearing my giant size x-men number one shirt nice. uh so i'm going with number 42 because I think everybody needs to know it, but also because it's been retconned in Deadly Genesis. And so I think, again, we're talking about Vulcan, so it kind of reminded me of it. But Professor X recruited his new X-Men team to rescue the original team, which was held captive by a living island called Krakoa. The mission was successful, and the only original member to remain with the new team was Cyclops. Well... <laughs> it wasn't quite retconned. That all still happened. Right, right. They just <laughs> there was another team as well. That's <laughs> so it just oh, reinforces yeah. the Xavier's and pretty uh, much, so yeah. Uh, I'll just get some new ones. Yeah, I don't need you guys. <laughs> That's basically how it read. And that was a great moment too, because at the end of that Deadly Genesis story, Scott was just like, You don't belong here no more. Yeah, he kicks him out. That's where he kicks him he out. He kicks him out of his own school. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, this is my property. Xavier, though, uh, Xavier trading other teams. I have to talk about 67, which is Xavier's gang. And it says, Xavier once trained the mutant motorcycling group Team America in the use of their abilities. They had the collective <laughs> mutant power to manifest the Marauder, a darkly clad motorcyclist extraordinaire. And this was in <laughs> New Mutants 5 to 6 and issue number 8. But then Team America had their own book also. But I just, I just think that's hilarious that he was involved in all that you know <laughs> <laughs>
the Mariners. Uh, one more team. All right. Did you have another one, Delamore? I do want to throw in one more just because I think this is like a essential thing that for people should know if they didn't know. I, at this point, did not know because I had only started reading in the 90s and my, my backlog had not been caught up yet. Stormy Weather, 57. Storm once lost her powers when she was blasted by a neutralizer gun set on its highest yep. energy level. It was designed by Forge to deprive a superhuman of his or her powers. She regained them when Forge created another gun, which turned on her powers. Uncanny X-Men 185 and then 226. That's a that's a hefty chunk of time where she didn't have her abilities. Yeah, and she still led the team. She still for, led the team for expertly. A long time after that. That's when she beat Cyclops in a, in a in a fight in the Danger Room which without her true. powers. Yeah, although it's later revealed that Madeline Pryor was psionically messing with him. So, so there's that. I'm always going to stump for my boy. Uh, no, but yeah, she she's a capable, super capable leader. She did all of that, no powers. And then, uh, yeah, Forge created that weapon back when they were trapped in the adversary's dimension. That's wild. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Now, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about the numbers on the list, but Wizard took it a step farther and they have a whole article called By the Numbers that is really interesting X-Men trivia. I mean, I guess it's kind of irrelevant now, but at the moment it was something you could pull from and stump your friends with because they count <laughs> up certain X-Men tropes, you know, how many times they appeared in the comics. For example, Wolverine uttered the word bub 229 times. <laughs> from the point of his joining the team in Giant Size X-Men number one to 1998. And yet, Professor X only wore black biker leather and studs once. Go figure, guys. I wondered, <laughs> was that while he was training Team America? He's like, I'm like you. I'm a biker, too. <laughs> <laughs> One um, of the guys. Yeah. But Wizard also tallied how many issues each member of the team had appeared in which found Storm beating out Wolverine for the top spot with 273 appearances as compared to Logan's 237, which wow. makes sense. I mean, he had all his like side, you know, books uh, over and over again. So it makes sense that he would disappear from the team. So they even counted how many times a writer or penciler worked on a main X-Men title. Of course, Chris Claremont dwarfed everyone. 200 issues under his belt as a writer at that point. Well, John Romita Jr., had the longest run of any artist, penciling 44 issues, and inker Dan Green almost doubled the output of fan favorite Terry Austin. Everybody thinks X-Men inker Terry Austin, right? With 80 issues compared to Austin's 45. So wow. I, I don't know if you guys look over this list. Are there any other stats that stand out to you? Something that surprised you? Uh, the shocking fact that the X-Men fought Magneto only six times. <laughs> it is like, a special occasion, I guess. It's it's so funny because it felt like it, it always feels like Magneto is the like crutch that a lot of writers fall on. It's right. like, oh, let's bring right. Magneto back. This will be like everyone wants to see Magneto. And then more in more recent times, it's like people who grew up reading stories about Magneto, they want to write Magneto. So we again we just keep cycling into this. So the fact that at this point it was only six, that's wild. Or that Cerebro only detected a new mutant nine times. What? Yeah. yeah, is, it, yeah. is it off most of the time? <laughs> They're like, we got to save power, guys. You know, there's a crisis. Well, and the other thing, too, <laughs> is you feel like, you know, you hear about them all the time, but we're going to get into all the big bads of the X-Men universe a little bit later. But they only fought Apocalypse once? Is that because X-Factor was always X-Factor did a lot of yep. it. Yeah. Yep. X-Factor did most of that fighting. Yeah, because I think at this point, 
this one's right before the 12 storyline, which it's really right like, before the 12. Yeah. And then at that long story short ends apocalypse for quite a while. A long time. That, yeah, yeah. He doesn't come back until the Peter Milligan run. Like oh. yo, a decade later, almost. This one has some asterisks. Uh, it just says the X Men or an X Man was thought dead, and they say nineteen, but then they said extended periods such as the Australia issues following the X Men's deaths in Uncanny X Men number two twenty seven <laughs> only counted I, once. Why do I only think of Gimli? It <laughs> still only counts as one. <laughs> I mean technically i guess that counts as one i i want to know when they lost the secret hack from that era that they couldn't be recorded by electronic equipment yeah that's yeah, what i want to know it just suddenly was like gone yeah that was even addressed in an issue of wizard they asked somebody at some point like i think it was bob harris specifically they said hey whatever happened to that he's like eh, we just we just let it go <laughs> like there was <laughs> we, no reason we forgot yeah <laughs> Somebody uh, forgot. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's keep moving here. There's also plenty of hype pieces for the upcoming X-Men spinoff books in this special. For example, Wild Card, page 32, reveals that Gambit was getting his own solo series, as I mentioned earlier, in 1999, drawn by Steve Scroach, who is awesome, <laughs> uh, who redesigned the Cajun's wardrobe and provides character sketches he was working on, which are like the pig haunts me. That character haunts pig, me to yeah. this day. <laughs> Yeah. At this time, no writer had taken the assignment, so there's really no explanation in this article about what the direction of the series would be headed plot-wise. Basically, Marvel Editor-in-Chief Bob Harris explains the decision was made because Gambit is the character fans are most interested in, which is really funny. <laughs> so he got the chance to break out on his own. What do you guys fall on Gambit? Has he ever been as cool in the comics as he was on the animated series? Yeah, because I feel like everybody, like, kind of says Gambit. Like, he was so awesome. He was so cool, like, in the cartoons or whatever. They love the look. And I feel like there is Gambit stories all over the place. Do you guys like Gambit in the comics? Like, is he a, a good character for the X-Men? I liked him more when everyone thought, especially Bishop, thought that he was the traitor before Onslaught. That's kind of like when, you know, it's like this mystery. Who's this guy? What's up with him? He's going to do something bad. He's going to betray everyone. And then after that, it kind of, at least to me, I, he just wasn't quite as cool. I, I don't know. He, that's the thing. He he had that mystery about him. And that was right. kind of the thing that propped him up. Right. And then, then yeah. the in the TV show, because then you kept finding out stuff, right? Oh, he's a he's a member of the Thieves Guild. Thieves oh, Guild, he's yeah. married. Oh, like you have all these little bits and pieces, and you're like Thieves Guild. Maybe he is the traitor, right? Like it, right. The, a lot of stuff just like made you just like run down your own little head cannon. And then when they revealed that Gambit didn't really have a purpose, so in the uh, space storyline, they made the culmination of that, which was like phalanx storyline with the with the shiar and all that was good but it wasn't great right but no one talks about that because that directly led into the trial of gambit right so like we needed this like big hype piece for gambit and then when he comes back here that is you know a year and a half after that and you're like what he was left in antarctica what's going on so there's that mystery again right. and that's why i think the book sold as well as it did because it's like we're gonna learn more about gambit because it's like he was missing how did he get back like you have all these questions and that's why i think the the one half issue that wizard offered ended up like filling in that gap yeah definitely he's one of those guys if he doesn't have the mystery then you're just like i guess you're cool but like really like we want to not trust you he's always the guy that they're not going to trust yeah yeah that's what it is and as yeah. soon as you learn all about him you're like well i mean i guess <laughs> i trust you now 
Because when, when he became like just one of the team, like when he sided with Rogue and Wolverine in the schism and went over to the Xavier school, can anyone say what he did? No, nothing. He, no, he was just a dude. He was just one of the teachers. Like he probably taught gym class, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> like you know, maybe lock picking or something. <laughs> All right. Now, moving on here, though, uh, there's an interview with the editor of Mutant X, Frank Pitarizzi, called Brave New World. And this is a book that I just reviewed the first 12 issues of on one of our Wizards Half episodes. And yet a ton of the details that are laid out here in this interview are not explained at all in the actual <laughs> issues. For example, how did Havoc's consciousness get transferred into his doppelganger's body in an alternate dimension? Like, that is like the whole crux. He's trying to figure it out. They never explain it. And according to Wizard in this interview here, quote, an exploding time machine and a psychic push from Xavier's underground enforcer's telepath fix. That was the cause. And none of sure. that means anything to me. Like, I'm, I don't know what this is. <laughs> oh, that was so... <laughs> Basically, from Bishop's Future, right. a group, another group like the XSE called the XUE, Xavier's Underground Enforcers, came back to the present to deal with some stuff. I forget why they came back, but what ended up happening is they, one of their members, ended up going rogue and they were trying to stop him. And he had this time bomb and he was going to destroy the timeline or something. You know, Havoc goes in to do the sacrifice play and they try to they try to save him and fix was i think trying to like reach out to him to like grab him and that might be how they're explaining it okay. but i think the this was explained i think post that book uh -huh. because it was explained more in the exiles crossover with the x-men yes. book at the time they explained that the havoc he replaced was like an evil like multiversally important evil havoc Oh. And like there was it was like a weird so it was just like a he died and there was just like a void. So they just needed to fill that void to prevent this evil havoc from happening. It's a very like I haven't read that story in a long time, but it was just I remember it being a very weird explanation for that. I was like, yeah, OK, sure. Well, <laughs> but the idea that they had it all planned out here, that's what I nah. find fascinating. Like they Why? knew what they were doing. They just didn't say it like in the book itself. But then they also mentioned because in this universe of Mutant X, you know, he's on a team called the six which is basically the x factor but they're not part of the x-men which are being led by magneto in this universe and so the editor explains here quote this team formed when professor x put magneto in charge of the x-men in uncanny x-men number 200 they didn't want to follow his philosophy so they split it off and became exactly what they feared they'd become under his leadership they're a darker team so again <laughs> and if you know your x-men history i guess you say oh okay so this is where that would have splintered off in this way or something but I was like, maybe, maybe, I don't know. But again, that wasn't explained in the book. Magneto just comes back with his X-Men team and you never find out the origin of the six, why they're a unit or anything. I was like, huh, okay. Listen, now, Marvel, I'd write that. I'd write that. I would write that for you. I love that run. That Mutant X run is so fantastic. I would absolutely write that miniseries to tie it in. Uh, well, and I'm going to read the rest of the issues. Maybe it's explained later because there's like 20 issues after the first 12, you know, the, but either way, like Bob Harris explains that it was originally a six month storyline that they were going to do in X-Factor. <laughs> 
And then he just said, no, let's just create X Factor, mutate, he says specifically, (laughs) new book. And now, you know, it's it's a change. We're going a bold new direction, but it's going to be 12 issues. And that explains why it feels like there's a lot of padding in that first year. Because I was just like, (laughs) a lot of stuff throughout here. Because it was only supposed to be six months worth of story, you know? So that's interesting. But I I do like that kind of, God, I I hate using this word because I never know if I'm using it correctly. But I like the juxtaposition of going back to like the original x-factor team after havoc's x-factor team replaced the original x-factor team right. just going going back to them in like a very different form I, that's interesting yeah yeah lot, lots of good takes there I, I i look forward to reading more but speaking of reading more everybody was reading about this guy back in the day jerry so keep us moving here. <laughs> wolverine yeah of course, we can't leave a Wolverine out in any kind of X-Men special ever. So there's a discussion about his solo series that's found in Bed to the Bone on page 44, where it's mentioned that Chris Claremont had a brief run being followed up by Todd DeZago coming off an amazing Spider-Man, all drawn by Lionel Francis Yu, who guy's a master. But most interesting is the announcement that Eric Larson will be writing Logan's Adventures for six issues in 1999 in a story that sends him into outer space to rescue a group of aliens that have been abducted and held captive. Says Wolverine editor Mark Powers, I really want to get Wolverine back in costume and do a lot of big superhero type stuff. That's something Eric wants to do, and I think it's a great idea. Larson himself says of this purpose in writing the book, I want it to be the kind of comic where people think, this is what I want when I read Wolverine. I'm getting what I want. And now, I know what I like in a Wolverine comic. You know, it's got to be brutal and kind of dark and gritty. What do you guys uh, want out of a Wolverine comic? Not Wolverine fighting Galactus. Because <laughs> that's what he did. That's what he did with that. Whoa. He took, he took him to space and he ends up fighting Galactus. <laughs> that's oh, a- man. It was such a ridiculous arc. No, I, I like I like a good Wolverine story with a lot of the variety of his personality, right? I like seeing his, like, multicultural nature. Like, even though he is, like, this kind of if you will, generic Canadian white kid who turns into a multicultural marvel because he grew up and and lived a whole lifetime on every continent, basically. So he's got this rich, incredibly rich backstory that he has deep ties in very different parts of the world and stuff that you wouldn't necessarily think this like one person could have, especially as deep as he does. Obviously, he's had hundreds of years to do it, but it's like, recently there was a, a great flashback uh of, like a, a team up with him and steve rogers captain america and it's like these guys literally fought in world war ii together like there's just something to that that i like the the history of it and uh yeah uh, having him like tied with with his broad multiculturalness i i dig that that's a because it's like he can fight in the way of the samurai right he can he's got the japanese ties but at the same time, he's like deep covert ops, American government, you know, long, deep covert ops. Like it's he's both and it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think I like the idea when he because I mean, it's nice to see his softer side, you know, when he's teamed up with Kitty Pride and he's a mentor to her. He's teamed up yeah. with Julie or whatever, you know, like those types of things are interesting. But I'd like him to not be 
in a team or teamed up when he's in his solo series. I like like a man on his own. And usually it's tied to something from his history. He gets pulled in. We need you to, you know, keep your word or you need to do something like I do like that idea. He's like he's he's got a specific mission. He's going to get it done, you know, and he's going to do it his way because he doesn't have to listen to Cyclops or Storm leading the team. (laughs) Like this is how Wolverine would handle it. Like, I think that's that's a pretty cool way to go about things. Like, it's funny because you're probably the first person to say that, that I've heard that like wants Wolverine to not be in a team setting because they've spent the last few years really building him up as like a believer in this like Krakoan era. And Mm -hmm. the the new writer on, on Wolverine had him literally like run off and be like, if you need me, I'm there for you, Sage, but I'm done with Krakoa. And I'm like, what the hell? What just happened? He was quoted as being like, oh, we, you know, Wolverine should be like a uh, like a one-man show and he should be like a solo, like out there kind of thing, right? But then in every issue, he teams up with someone. <laughs> That's the problem. It's Wolverine team up and I don't want that. I want to see how does he handle it? You know, he's the MacGyver who gets pulled into a situation. He's a one-man A-team and he's getting hired out somehow to help somebody, you know, like what are his skills and how is he using That'd be a great run. I'd, re- I'd read it out of that Wolverine run where it's like yeah. he's like the the private eye kind of guy that's so he's just he's running an agency yeah. <laughs> like somebody's gonna call him he's gonna handle some <laughs> <laughs> oh Jerry what was your take like where, where is your Wolverine sweet spot I mean this whole Krakoa era is just like the worst kind of fan fiction to me I, I just I'm not in I don't like this whole bit I I, oh. I think if they had, I think if they had let Hickman finish his original run i would have liked it but to me now it's just been dragged out so long and it's like okay i'm done as far as wolverine goes though i kind of like whenever he was in madripoor you know just just that kind of wolverine although there is something to be said about his interactions with everybody else it's almost like he doesn't really have a personality unless he's interacting with someone well, but that's what I'm saying. Like with the X-Men, you get plenty of that. So he's in the X-Men, right. but when he has his own solo story, let him be solo. And maybe he could be silent for a lot of it. Let it be like that Snake Eyes G.I. Joe issue. Let, let's let just see him <laughs> nice. you know, doing the mission. It's all action, you know, like, I don't know. But he's going to have a lot of internal dialogue. You know, he is. The, Wolverine, right. Wolverine, he's not a man of many words, but he's a man of many thoughts. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so I do want to mention here that they also like we're not going to get into every single article, but there is like also hype pieces about Cable by Joe Casey and Jose Ladron, which we actually talked to Joe Casey about. So we don't need to get into that. Uh, there's also mentions of the angsty adventures, right, of the younger mutancy of Generation X and X-Force and X-Man. Briefly, mm. do you guys have any particular feeling about one of those books over another? Did you? I mean, I still can't believe X-Man survived Age of Apocalypse and just kept going, just kept being published like that's such a surprise to me he's such a weird character because he was designed to be like this ridiculously powerful telepath and telekinetic user i mean he's just like just this mutant messiah figure and that didn't really go anywhere and then he was like crazy depowered and then he kind of came back a few years ago and uh tried to recreate the world or whatever it was that happened uh i i only vaguely recall it now it's one of those that i agree i don't really know how he managed to last as long as he did but it's kind of a, a pleasant surprise whenever I see him. It, it's more like a, and I don't know if it's just nostalgia or if it's just because I really like the Age of Apocalypse storyline and it just kind of reminds me of that, but it's endearing in, in his own way. So his solo book was was okay. <laughs> what I think kept him kept him around was 
in part nostalgia because I think people really, I mean, to this day, there's, there's a reason they keep milking Age of Apocalypse. It's true. Like that's yeah. that's all time. That's gonna be an all time. Like there's gonna be the Phoenix Saga and Age of Apocalypse are like the two all time stories. I think there's that, but also his story is just of a young dude trying to find his way through the world and like having more power than he knows what to do with. Like he he's he's got more power than he has sense, you know. So he's got he has all these like stumbles through various different kinds of like romantic relationships, friendships, familial relationships, you know, out coming out of Operation Zero Tolerance, he has an interaction with the with the Gray family. And it's like this weird, like they're kind like they're kind of my grandparents, but like <laughs> Right. You know, it's like a really weird situation. So it's like, I think it probably spoke to, you know, a lot of the primary demographic of these books, was, which was teenage boys. Like, I think it spoke to, it's just this kid who doesn't know what the f*** he's doing. And like, that's what all of us were as teenagers. We just don't know what the f*** we're doing now i want to get into this here that there is an article because they love to do their rankings i always feel like it was fodder for their magic words call like let's do a top 10 list so everybody can tell us we're wrong and we'll get a million letters each month they're ranking the top 10 x-men villains they call it faces of death and of course duh magneto gets the gold medal for villainy even though they've only fought him six times apparently at this point (laughs) (laughs) and this is another thing I've never really understood. You know, he's he's Eric Lenshire, but he's also Magnus. Like, Xavier always seems to call him Magnus. But who gets your vote for best nemesis to Professor X and his band of Merry Mutants, guys? Like, you guys have read a lot more X-Men than me. If it's not Magneto, who is it? Oh, okay. So excluding Magneto. Excluding Magneto. We know he's Oof. number one. Everybody knows he's number one. He's right, number one. right, right, right. <laughs> is there anybody on this list when you look at it? Here's the thing. I have very much take a perspective of everything that is always was right so whenever they do a retcon in my opinion whatever they've included has always been factual so that is why to me magneto is no longer their nemesis so like the historic nemesis magneto was just two friends like two like in actuality the things that xavier was always saying that they were friends they were just on opposite sides of the same coin they really were because as as hickman puts it at the beginning of house of x powers of x you find out that they started this whole thing together they orchestrated all of this the whole time so to me automatically that reframes everything in the past so their fights the fatal attractions moment like that was just the Hmm. biggest falling out between friends but xavier knew that would come around like he knew so like it was just a moment of frustration it's like the the fist fight that happens between two dudes after they've just really pissed each other off and then it's like years later they talk again so for me he's not that for me it's gotta be shadow king it's gotta be shadow king i think shadow king is is this like worm that ends up in all of these different corners of the X-Men and and he corrupts everything he touches. And there's not really moments where he can just like, you can't get away from the Shadow King. Like even more recently in the New Mutants book, they had a really, really interesting arc with the Shadow King and how he was like corrupting the young mutants. And like even finding out that Amal Farouk is not the Shadow King. Like it's, it's always been this like entity this parasite and that's why i think it's the it's it's like the true nemesis where it's like he's been around like he was the first enemy that he encountered that xavier encountered ever 
Yeah, that's interesting. But my vote was going to, for a similar reason, because it's just like this entity that is trying to corrupt or break hearts and destroy. And to me, that's Dark Phoenix, because it's an evil entity that destroyed them, just affected them in such a major way for so long. It's come back several times, yes? <laughs> the Phoenix, yeah, the Phoenix Force. Yeah. It feels like like this like constant you know thing they always have to be aware of, because they're like, what can we really do against it? Like, it's so powerful, you know? And, and now it's like multiversally important too. Like the yeah. recent Avengers run showed us like the Phoenix Force goes back to the beginning of time. She's yeah. she's Thor's but, surrogate mother. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. Those are both very good. I kind of want to say I'm gonna take the lame route. I'm gonna go humanity. Oh, there you go. That's not lame. That's not lame. That's probably yeah. Because like it's always. I mean, we got Cameron Hodge and and you know his dealings with. Then there was a phalanx, and then we had uh, we have the Sentinels that are always there and Bastion now Orcus and and uh, Mm. all the stuff going on. I mean, it's kind of lame, but I feel like that's maybe the biggest. (laughs) <laughs> some some of the most most poignant moments in X-Men history, I think, come at the brutality of humans. God the, loves man kills, you know. God loves man kills is ridiculous. I mean, I think that is that I think is a required reading for all comic book fans. That's such a moment. I mean, like, it does have another I thought the only when I first read it, but apparently not the only moment where Chris Claremont has Kitty Pride say the N-word. Oh. But yeah, it, there's a lot of really poignant moments in that book. But like, if you look at when the the religious cult, like when they had strung up skin and he died, Angela was dead. Like Jubilee was near death. Like a bunch of these younger mutants got literally crucified on the X-Men's front lawn. Like the, that's the work of humans. Like that's not right. some malevolent creature or whatever. It. it yeah, you're right. I think I think humanity has to be the biggest thing. And, and I think that's why the Krakoan era really, really resonates with me. Because it's like, we have done everything we can. We have tried on every level to coexist, to protect you, to do everything we can to convince you we are not evil, just for existing. Right. And you will not let us have that. So we are out. We're doing our own thing over here in the ocean. <laughs> That, yeah that's wow jerry yeah you you nailed it there it is i mean that's always <laughs> their their biggest yeah conflict is with humanity so hard to deny now the way they appealed to humanity though they proved you know that everybody could love them was at the box office and so we're, <laughs> we're gonna get a little less deep here and a little more silly but you know it was still two years away but it was in the work a wizard had to report on the live action x-men film and the cast had yet to be revealed at this point we had a director and we know had our producers but that was it so as a result though they're going to be reporting on the various rumors from multiple sources uh, starting with the fact that zod himself terrence stamp oh, that would have been cool with christopher walken john malkovich or kevin spacey for the role of magneto oh. well, those are all rough okay first of all let's say ian mckellen amazing yeah uh, okay but if it wasn't going to be him terrence stamp would have been phenomenal in that role i have to agree yeah that that would have been good (laughs) now the director also had obviously stated his desire for patrick stewart to play charles xavier but also ben kingsley and jonathan price were rumored somewhere get out of here get out of here with that nonsense (laughs) i think patrick stewart was the only one i ever pictured in my mind patrick stewart was lab grown to play charles xavier (laughs) like no 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 somebody from the future like went back and were like 
yeah, that works. And I'm going to just go back and make sure that happens. <laughs> that has to happen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, Angela Bassett was also the director's choice for Storm. I still don't I would still watch that. I still that. think she would have been amazing. Uh, how did we get Halle Berry? I do Oof. not know. But they were also saying Iman and Pam Greer were in the mix for Storm. I wouldn't be mad at Pam Greer. That's I wouldn't either. Cool. I think she would have been a killer Storm, especially if it was made... Uh, in the 80s james cameron was in talks so oh yeah yeah i think that would have been that, that would have, have been a cool early lasted. revival pre-tarantino revival of her career that would have been cool that right would, right but it been right around the time of bill and ted's bogus journey where she's just doing a cameo you know now of course the money role for this whole thing was wolverine right and that's right. what i'm speculating on now they mentioned glenn danzig and robert de niro because <laughs> that's what wizard was saying for years at this point right but also they mentioned mel gibson or kurt russell kurt uh, russell i could see maybe yeah of that been. era yeah kurt russell maybe maybe not of 98 because that photo that they're uh, using is true. like is I, I like, 90, like jack burton like, kurt russell yeah. so yeah that was like yeah. 10 years earlier yeah that's, well, that's an earlier photo that photo that kurt russell for sure <laughs> yeah yeah exactly now, Gambit didn't appear in the film, but cast members from two different The Crow movies are mentioned. They're saying Vincent Perez, who was the yeah. star of the sequel, and then Thomas Ian Griffith, who was the, the villain, I think, in the first one, in right? the first one. I could have seen him as Gambit, actually. He's he got a Gambit vibe. I yeah, real dark Gambit, but he would have been cool. Leonardo DiCaprio for Iceman? There's no way. Come on. Was it? Sure. I don't. I, I can't, never heard that in my life. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I've never. I've never heard of that. No one's ever brought it up. And and since Leo has become like an actor's actor, yeah, like right. no one's talking about him for MCU for roles. You like, yeah, no, no one's doing that. But like. He was he was a, a young kid. He was an attractive kid, and I think that would have worked. Now I can see this next one. John Leguizamo as Nightcrawler. <laughs> he's got the quippiness. <laughs> he's gonna be talking, you know, nonstop. <laughs> oh man, that's funny. Right <laughs> Made me choke. I swallowed wrong. <laughs> I don't know about that. That's he doesn't quite have the innocence that I think of when I think of Nightcrawler. Like Nightcrawler just happy-go-lucky. Yeah, he's he's too raucous. I think is the word yeah. for it. Like he's, yeah. he's not, uh, th there's like, there's a calm reserve nature to Nightcrawler. And I think who they got to play him was perfect. I, I, I don't yeah. know that you could have done it better than that. That was great. The next one is weird. They want Elizabeth Hurley as Psylocke. And I'm like, you want the original British version of Psylocke? The British version is what they're thinking of. No I mean, it has to be, that right? on screen, though. Like, that's that's not the character. That's not the version of Psylocke anybody thinks of, you know? Well, not at this time. This is when she was fully Asian. You know, yeah, she was a ninja. I mean. I mean, it's... it's Has she gone back? Has she gone back to be white and British? Yes, they have done the beautiful work of bringing back Elizabeth Braddock right. as her own body and Quanan was reborn into her own body as the original Psylocke and now they're both way more interesting wow yeah. I had no Agreed. idea that's cool for Rogue, they had three very different actresses in mind. They're saying, what if it was Denise Richards, Winona Ryder, or Ashley Judd? I'm like, huh? <laughs> Winona wow. Ryder? <laughs> and and you know exactly what they're going for there. They're, they're going for the, the hot appeal. Because right. Rogue, even in the cartoon, and I don't remember, thank God I don't remember this. I'm really glad I didn't latch on to like, these tropes as a kid. But like, even in the cartoon, they played her real sexy. Like, there's, yeah, they there's, did. There's moments I where she's like, that. she plays, she plays like sexy injured woman on the ground a couple times. And I'm so glad I, don't, I didn't Looking catch that when I was a kid. Right? 
Yeah, I mean, Ashley Judd, maybe only because, you know, she's got the little bit of the country element to her. Right. That's kind of of those choices. That's probably the one I would pick. Yeah. What about Michael Bean? as cyclops they, that's another one wizard was pushing for a long wizard's time. the one that said it Michael yeah they had bean. that in their fan cast i remember when i read that being so upset because he wasn't like a big star i was like i want this guy playing cyclops and then <laughs> now that i think about it i'm not mad at it at all yeah we've seen him be the battle weary leader you know like that you guys right. were describing him as in the terminator you know so i guess right. that's what they're saying he's done it let's get him to do it again yeah right pretty much as we close out, though, I do want to mention, in fact, if I don't mention it, people are probably going to be upset. Uh, included in the poly bag with this issue was Cerebro's Guide to the X-Men. It was an exclusive wizard issue collaboration with uh, Marvel Comics. Inside, everything is kind of laid out like a Windows desktop. Like, you know, you have that type of border on all these profiles of essentially everybody in the X-Men universe. You know, mutants of all shapes and sizes, heroes and villains overall i mean this would be a whole other episode if we had to get into all the details that are included here but i know this was a a special reference guide for a lot of people they do have a contest that they call introducing the x-men where the readers were tasked to look at four different x-men wearing four different costumes that they had dressed themselves in over the years and then you had to identify which was their original look, which for anybody who read some X-Men comics, it wouldn't be too hard. But the grand prize winner who could do that to have their name selected would receive a copy of Giant Size X-Men number one, plus the original Wolverine miniseries trade signed by Chris Claremont, the Dark Phoenix Saga Mutant Massacre trades, and a copy of Chromium Classics, the origin of the X-Men. I had to look this up. Apparently it was a six-issue series of Chromium wraparound covers, and I assume (laughs) they were just reprints like it was just probably like, yeah. yeah i'm sure so I, I, i'd never heard of those before even in wizard they never talked about them i was just like what is this but also the issue ends with a very fun where's waldo style piece by brian douglas ahern titled find professor x featuring every bald character from comics movies television plus some xavier doppelgangers crowded all together and the reader is asked to find the real professor x um, <laughs> is, is there a certain like pop culture figure that jumps out at you guys when you see this <laughs> i did like professor x's head on cyclops's body yeah <laughs> <laughs> that was fun i see i see a couple luthors yeah i see of course uh picard, of course, picard yeah charlie Bond. brown so they have a lot of, of interesting takes and i love how they also fake you out because they go like oh here's professor x in a wheelchair you're like oh it's the real one but then he'll have like a mohawk or he'll have like giant eyebrows or whatever you know and you're like oh it's not him it's pretty great even telly savalas is in the bottom corners that you know with his lollipop who loves the lollipop you? yeah Oh, but this is great. When we post this to social media, I'm sure everybody will get a kick out of this. Well, guys, honestly, I couldn't have picked two better people to be on this episode. Just the way you guys pluck the knowledge out of the air of these storylines. Oh, it helped me out so much to get through this and to and really learn some things. Like, I'm, I'm kind of impressed by some of the decisions that have been made over the years, you know? So, <laughs> very, very fun. But why don't you tell everybody if they like your brand of fun, uh, where they can find you? Jerry, why don't you kick 
kick us off? Sure. So I am the host of Totally Rad Christmas. This is a podcast all about Christmas in the 80s. So I'll talk about anything from, like you said, comic books to TV specials to movies to music to food to fashion to fads. It doesn't matter. As long as it has anything remotely to do with Christmas in the 80s, we're going to cover it on my show. And you can find me, of course, at totallyradchristmas.com or you can just go to linktree.com slash totallyradchristmas and I'm all over the webs and all that stuff. Yeah, very, very fun show. Very chill, very enjoyable. So yeah, <laughs> you don't like you don't like harsh podcasting. You just want a fun time <laughs> over to Totally Rad Christmas. And like I say, you might hear from me in a couple, a couple of, of times. times. Yeah. All right, but Dallybor, where can people find you? So as you mentioned earlier, I am the indie hype man. I uh, I promote indie creators, indie books, indie comics uh, all over social media. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at indie hype man on tiktok at indie hype man you can check out the catalyst.digital that is my indie creator magazine where i promote people it has been coming out quarterly but i want to give your audience an exclusive starting january we are going to be bi-monthly so every two months there's going to be an issue of catalyst dropping because there's just so many creators so many projects coming out so i'm like you know what there's there's just not enough time to try to get a bunch of different people who are launching in the same time frame figure we just do it more often that way it'll be easier for for me and more people get to see more cool projects Uh, and then i also have a podcast that's centered on comic books but it's a little bit of everything around comic books related media called panels on pages i've talked to indie creators i have little rants about certain topics and like i said before i'm working on that uh I'm calling it the X-Men that never were. Okay. Yeah. We'll we'll have to keep an eye out for that for sure. We'll share it on social media so everybody can catch up with that. But hey, of course, you know where to find us this holiday season. That's right. You want to put a little Wizards in your stocking. Just go on over to wizardscomics.com where you can check out over 240 episodes at this point. Behind the scenes interviews, coverage of Wizard Magazine, bonus episodes, so much more. Uh, But you can also find us daily. We're posting scans. We want to give everybody that that visual nostalgia we're at wizards comics on x we're at wizards underscore comics on instagram we're on blue sky at wizards comics you know we're also on threads and tiktok and i mean it's wizards comics everywhere you go but we also want to always extend uh, the invitation for those of you who want to join the patreon yes you're contributing to the podcast you're helping us grow but really it's just about giving you more wizards there's an uncut version of this special where you get all sorts of extra bits and pieces that uh, may not have made it into the final edit uh, but you're also getting a scan of this special to enjoy so you can go through all the history check out some more of those stats that we discussed uh, and so much more so it's just a way to expand your experience with wizards the podcast guide to comics so we'd love to have you over there once again patreon.com forward slash wizards comics but until next time This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.